Hello, this is Cole, and welcome to the Holiday Moons Podcast, where we share our love for the holidays with you year-round. Hi, this is Beth, and I am going to touch on the history of picnics and talk about some picnic traditions around the world. This is Sydney, and I will be continuing my series on unusual tourist attractions in the U.S., specifically the Clown Motel in Nevada. (laughs) That sounds horrible. Horrifying. (laughs) This is Randy, and I will be finishing my summer discussion of vacations in the U.S., this time in the 1970s. And as always, we start with our holiday happenings for the week. I know one holiday sad happening is it's blistering sunshine heat oh my goodness outside it's, it's in so the hundreds hot. yeah it's hot week. enough that the breeze just blows more hot air into you that's right that's right we went to see the movie lion king last night so that was a fun happening yep in our family three of us went to see it yeah. sydney chose to not go and it was really good it was uh it was really good you know, it's one of those things it where good. you know you um could really mess it up or it could be you know, kind of pretty good. And it was good. Yeah, it was good. It was I thought they did a good job with that. It was also a cleanup weekend for us. So we've been working hard since it's so hot outside. We've been working hard inside cleaning up rooms and basements and lots of different things along the way. So a busy weekend for us. But we're always happy to jump back in and enjoy the summer. Today is ice cream day <gasps> as we record this. How fun! <laughs> I know. <laughs> That's a fun summertime activity, as is picnicking. Picnicking? Yes. Well, fancy you brought up picnicking. <laughs> picnicking has occurred before the word picnic came into our language. What? It's true. It seems like the picnic idea came about from medieval hunting feasts, from what I could tell. Oh. That's interesting. That is interesting. Um, I would have actually thought it would be older than that. Um, it could there be. Were, there, well, there were a variety. I, I guess it depends on how you define picnicking. Exactly. Now, for this idea of eating in the outdoors is what I'm talking about. Well, Mid- that goes way back. <clears throat> eating well, in the well that's true. Recre- for, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It does. So... Eating in the outdoors to enjoy the landscape like and the re- setting. recreationally, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. That's a good way to put it. The medieval hunting feasts seem to be the furthest back that I could find. The medieval days, and Cole, you can um, correct me with it for this. It's anywhere from the 1300s to the 1600s. Is that correct? Uh, okay, so this is this is hard because there isn't a defined medieval period, but a lot of historians think of it as the medieval period. It isn't sort of a defined block of time, but a lot of them. I would personally say that the medieval period sort of begins 10th century, and a lot of historians say that the early modern period begins with the fall of Constantinople in 1453. Okay. All right. So, this is shortly thereafter, but they are consistently called medieval meals, meals in the Middle Ages. So, it said elegant, this is from history.com. Elegant outdoor meals were probably first eaten during the Middle Ages when hunting became a favored pursuit of the leisure class. These medieval hunting feasts were depicted in artworks of the time like the Ballads of Robin Hood and famous tapestries. 
Okay, and from NPR.org, I'm sitting here looking at a picture that is a group of people that are denoted as a medieval hunting feast in the Elizabethan country parties. And one of the things that they say, this particular family is on a blanket. And it said, food historian Lynn Oliver says, middle-class Victorians picnicked on a tablecloth or bedspread like we do today. The wealthier you were, the higher you dined. So this family was more like a middle-class family than a wealthier family. So let's see, I see a lot of people, blankets on grass, yep. and big old wicker basket that I'm presuming held food. Correct. I would presume it too. All right, so... The word picnic came from the French. Oh. And it came from, and I'm going to... It, the original word probably has a few U's and X's that aren't pronounced correctly. Right, and I'm not going to pr- pronounce it correctly, but it's... Picanique? Picanique? Something like that. P-I-Q-U-E-N-I-Q-U-E. Oh. Picnique. Picnique. Sounds very, sounds very fancy. Sounds very French. So this signifies an outing with food similar to the words meaning in English. The attendees, however, would all bring food to the occasion, similar to what we call potlucks. So up until Victorian times, picnics were primarily a pursuit of the wealthy. It's easy to understand why working men and women barely had enough means to scrape together a proper meal indoors, let alone pack up a feast to go. But the Victorian era saw the picnic cross class boundaries. So I think the difference between just eating outside and a picnic comes back to that phrase, an outing. Like an outing is an intentional time, leisure activity. (laughs) You want to eat outside. Like you're Mm -hmm. choosing to eat outside with a person or group of people. Right. Right. Versus I am forced to eat outside. That's not really a picnic. We are are travelers and we eat and sleep outside because that's what we have to do. Right. 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 So the Victorian era, I believe, is very beginning of the 20th century. It said it was 1837 to 1901. I always think of it as the turn of the century. I don't really think of it as far back as 1837. So I don't know if that's completely accurate or not, but that's what I found. Very interesting. But either way, uh, much later than the medieval period, when right. sort of these the middle class is starting to appear. And, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. This was definitely a pursuit of the wealthy. And it started out in France... <laughs> And the French Revolution actually is what brought it over to England because a lot of the wealthy French people left the country. The aristocracy, right. Yes, and a lot of them ended up in London, England. They went to different countries, but a lot of them went to London, England. And the picnic then took on a very different look and feel. But I'm going to let you guys look that up. (laughs) (laughs) A little intrigue there. Little like the lemonade situation, right? Little yeah. darkness in little, the picnic world. It's a, it gets a little risque there for a little while. So I yes, I know, right? The underbelly of the picnic world. <laughs> well, I mean, picnic, picnic if, it's, mafia. if it's starting with the French Revolution, then you're kind of yeah. you're starting off pretty pretty dark and violent already. Yeah. Well, it was a lot of young men over there, a lot of young displaced aristocrats together. In London. Stuff happens. Very, Stuff happens. Very French. <laughs> Is it very, yes. So they're, the picnic started ended up being a little different, but it came back to where it needed to be. What happens in the picnic stays <laughs> in the picnic. 
That's yeah, we'll, we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> so now I'm going to talk about present-day picnics around the world. One of those is in Japan, and it's during cherry blossom season. So there are cherry blossom viewing picnics. Very popular. The time frame to enjoy the blossoms is so small that a lot of the parks are packed to the brim with the friends and families enjoying the homemade dishes. And food vendors also are among the picnickers, and department stores have boxes that people can buy. So there are a variety of ways to enjoy. So I'm imagining more like a, uh, a packed fireworks show than an enjoyable like picnic. Right, it's more they it's, it's more they want to yeah. be around the uh, under the cherry blossoms versus having space and landscape to look at mm-hmm. that kind of a thing. Probably pretty crowded. Like our yeah, cherry blossoms, you could not picnic in the DC area no. around the cherry blossoms because there's just so many people. Yep, this is a cultural understanding that picnicking is what you're doing. Unlike DC, where the cultural understanding is get there, take pictures, crowds. The next picnic I'm going to talk about is the Christmas picnic in Argentina. What? I want to go to the Christmas picnic. I know. I thought, how nice is that? But it said, while the upper hemisphere dreams of a white Christmas during the snowflake and cold weather season, Argentinians celebrate the holiday outdoors with Christmas picnic. They take place on beaches or homes, patios, complete with roasted or barbecued turkey, pork, or goat. So warm down in Argentina. Not as fun. No, not this one. Uh, in Great Britain, it's <laughs> this um, particular website had said, Britain's relationship with picnics goes back to the Middle Ages, which we just learned about, when royalty would eat out of doors during hunting parties. Now, my question is, Britain only has sunshine for about 30 minutes every day, so... So they have to get in that so, 30 minutes. <laughs> right. So is it an overcast picnic? It could be, I guess. I was expecting more follow-up with that joke, (laughs) since we've all been there, and it was overcast for almost the entire time. Yeah. I'm disappointed in you guys. (laughs) Go ahead. Sorry, I'm not as... Oh, sorry for your disappointment. Yeah, no. It wasn't until the late 18th century when one of the UK's most iconic picnic foods emerged, which is... Fish and chips? Ooh, um, fried chicken? Nope. Uh, Bangers and mash? It's specific to Great Britain. It is the Scotch egg. Oh. <laughs> wow. I would never I would have not guessed that. that. I didn't know if you would that or not. Became a I was going to be like, staple biscuits? Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> that sounds good too. Bread. <laughs> it's a fried sausage wrap boiled egg, which were a luxury lunch item for the upper class travelers because they were known to be easy to eat on the road. In the years since, the snack has become popular among picnickers looking to pack a filling dish that can be served cold, Perfect for celebrating the country's National Picnic Week each June. National Picnic Week. Who knew? I know. In Australia, it's it's funny because in the Northern Territory, they celebrate the Railway Heritage Picnic Day on the first Monday of each August. It allows families a long holiday filled with activities like dancing, tug-of-war, and... Scotch egg eating. No. (laughs) Lizard racing. (laughs) Okay. Now, we don't see that often. <laughs> no. And I would not have guessed that either. I would not have guessed that either. So, United States has the eating contest picnics. Yes, yes I guess. Yeah. So, many Americans have picnics on the summer holidays. Memorial Day, 4th of July, and Labor Day are all within there. 
and they can include competitive games like the three-legged races and egg relays. But Americans, you can see if you agree with this, but Americans pride themselves on a race of another sort, the food eating contest. The first one appeared in 1916 and pitted hot dog eaters against one another. That year, the winner ate 13 hot dogs at an Independence Day celebration in Coney Island. Yuck. <laughs> so, it's interesting. So, I have, like, seen interviews with, like, competitive eaters, and it's interesting how they... It, it is almost like a, a sport, in a way, because they learn, like, how, how to break down the food and things like that. Right. Um, but, yeah, no, that I, I could easily see that that being an American thing. That's true. I saw, a, I saw two people, they had... They were going to race have a cotton cotton candy eating race uh-huh. and so the one is say they said go and the one started eating the cotton candy the yeah. other wow you know how you can wind up cotton candy and make yeah. it a small little ball yeah did that stuck it in their mouth yeah. and they were done and the other one was just staring yeah <laughs> it's like oh it's like insane and like i saw another one where i think they were eating some type of bread and they had a cup of water and with the competitive race, the other person just started eating, but the competitive racer dipped, broke off pieces, dipped it in the water, and just ate it within like a couple seconds. Yeah, because it helps, yeah. get, it, helps it go down. Yeah. yeah. Well, it says, now picnickers and those hosting outdoor events often include contests for speed eating pies or watermelon. Mm-hmm. And I think that is, we've all heard of the pie eating contest, watermelon eating contest. Hot so. dog is pretty yeah. ordinary, too. I never yeah. entered those because it's not an enjoyable eating Right. It is not. But some I, people do enjoy they, competing. The, the yeah, competing right. part. So it depends what you're going after. I like right. the eating and tasting part yeah, right. more than the competitive part. But some people would like the competitive Clearly. Part. Right? Yeah. yeah. All right. In Iceland, you can go on a berry picking picnic. So berry hunters often pack picnic lunches to take along in their search as berries ripen throughout the summer months. But besides the meats and cheeses, the most important ingredient for an Icelandic picnic is secrecy. What? <laughs> Wait, what? Didn't see that one coming. I know. <laughs> Keeping berry picnic picking... for one <laughs> <laughs> or two, if you have someone that you can share your secrets with. Keeping berry picking spots under wraps means more for your own harvest. So you don't share your locations because oh, there's not a lot of them. I see. So it's the berry picking location that is the secret part. Right. Not just that you're having a picnic and where you're going. Right, yeah. (laughs) So in Turkey, there are glamorous picnics. So Turkey has a reputation for superb picnics. And it could have something to do with the country's thousands of picnic grounds open to the public. And I didn't even know there were thousands of picnic grounds in Turkey. So we have a nephew who's currently in Turkey as part of his schooling. That's right. So Stephen, if you are listening to your... Family's podcast here. Yeah. Go look for picnic spots. Apparently, there's a lot of them. How many? Thousands? Yeah. It says thousands. There you go. All right. I don't know. Like, I would imagine there would be more than thousands of spots where you could have a picnic. <laughs> what would you call a spot? Yeah, I, don't know, I don't know how you define a picnic spot. Like It says picnic grounds. Picnic grounds. Oh, like a wow. specific wow. So, I don't it's know. It like, like a lot. Somewhere on the ground, right? Yeah. <laughs> but it's not, yeah. To designate something as picnic like, grounds, I could, I could call our front yard a picnic ground. Like, <laughs> true, because it is. Could, yeah, it's nice. It's, yeah. So many Turkish families bring along cushions, rugs, and furniture to set up comfortable picnicking spots, along with games, string lighting, and a potluck-style selection of stuffed veggies, grilled meats, and desserts. By nighttime, many picnics are still going and turn into bonfires, complete with music, dancing, and is it rocky? 
which is a Turkish licorice flavored alcohol. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't Rocky, remember, but Rocky. I heard what you're talking about. But yes, you have you tried some mm-hmm. when we were in Turkey. This sounds like my kind of picnic. Yeah, with string lights and all that. Yeah, very nice. And and oh, cushions. Oh, <laughs> nice. <laughs> and cushions, rugs, and furniture. Yeah. Inside. Yeah, that, would, that would be my picnic. That would be All my way till dusk. Yeah. <laughs> and then finally, the last thing I'm going to touch on is a worldwide tradition, apparently, of cemetery lunches. Now, did you guys ever do cemetery? cemetery no, I, you you mentioned that. That's the first time I heard about that. That was very popular. Yeah. You know, have lunch next to your grandma pops. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> to make it a family thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it says picnicking by the final resting places of family and friends isn't confined to any one culture around the globe. Friends and families have gathered in ceremonies to celebrate special occasions, holidays, and remember deceased loved ones. During Victorian era, picnickers often set up lunch next to headstones, enjoying the cemetery as a recreational space for games and activities. That actually reminds me of um, uh, Day of the Dead. And that's the other thing. In Mexico, those celebrating Dia de la Mu- <laughs> wait, Dia de los Muertos... Day of the Dead, lunch among family grave sites, and wasn't that Coco? Isn't mm-hmm. that yeah the, the Disney the Coco. Disney movie Coco? Talk about that, and that was actually a really cute show. And the Chinese also have an annual festival honoring their ancestors. While cemetery lunching is less common in the modern U.S., some and this is this made me laugh. Some morticians and preservationists support its reemergence as a way to celebrate and enjoy life of all stages. I'm like, how many morticians? Have you heard wanting people to do recreational lunching next well, to the group? Well, there's site? a Facebook group of morticians, so it depends if you're following them or not. <laughs> you kind of have to be on the inn, you know? <laughs> mortician inn. Yeah. I, don't, I could see going to a cemetery for a picnic not being that bad, because we like to visit yeah. cemeteries like when we were in Scotland and look at yeah. the names and the, you know, the ages and a lot of old cemetery gravestones. Had elaborate things on them. Oh, they, yeah, were, they were really cool. Right, a lot yeah. of them were more like statues. Yeah, or, yeah, or like crypts, like on the ground. Some of the big ones in Scotland were like full. They looked like a the opening of a crypt at right. the top. They were mm-hmm. really cool looking. Absolutely. And speaking of cemeteries um, and horrifying things and horrifying <laughs> things, but I will get back to the cemetery in a second. We are continuing our series on unusual tourist attractions in the U.S. So, I had been thinking about this particular topic for a while and doing some research. I don't want to be thinking about this. <laughs> I know. And, um, yeah, it's the Clown Motel in Nevada. <laughs> wow. Clown. When I think of Nevada, I do not think, hey, I think there might be a cool clown museum there. No, Clown Motel. Clown Motel. Oh, my gosh. She, <laughs> no. she didn't catch on to that <laughs> That's I, was, I thought it was a museum for the first time. <laughs> That's so much said, worse. <laughs> so much worse. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, so. All right, so, yeah, explain us what it is. Okay, so. There are different websites. Don't explain. (laughs) Just stop right now. There are many different websites that have information. I'm going to take the information from Bustle.com, where the the title of it is, This Club Motel in Nevada is pretty much the scariest motel in the world. And I I have to say, I agree. So it is located in Tonopah, Nevada. This Club Motel is exactly what it looks like. A motel dedicated to terrifying images figurines, statues, toys, and other miscellaneous items. However, it is not meant to be a scary motel. Oh, yeah? Here's a picture of one of the clowns. 
Wait, it's dedicated to getting horrifying clowns, but it's not meant to be like a horrifying place. Right. That seems contradictory. Well, well, (laughs) they're not meant to be scary. And um, going back to your museum comment, it pretty much doubles as a clown museum, which is, which as uh, Bustle.com says, which is most people's nightmare. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. So, the clown motel... Is basically located in an old mining town that boasted silver deposits in the early 1900s. But in 1942, according to the town's tourism page, a fire basically caused $100,000 of damage when it tore through an extension mill and hotel. Um, this hotel, I think, had some damage too. Um, now it's your fairly average small town laying about three hours outside of Las Vegas. It is home to around maybe, this is around 600 clown figures. So if you're wondering who had this fantastically strange idea for a motel, I according am. to the lineup, the clown motel was founded by Liana and LeVron David in 1985. Okay, and in their defense, um, it was only it was five years before the 1990 Stephen King miss, miniseries It. In which a demonic clown feasted on fear and, you know, people. So... And, you know, people. And one year before King released the novel version of it. That's unfortunate timing. It is. It's very unfortunate You don't get a lot of, uh, of fun clown yeah, profit in those five years. Can yeah. you think of a time... Um, I can think of a time when clowns were fun. Can you guys... as since I you can, guys are younger. I can think of a time when clowns were fun. When we were young. Yeah. Yeah. When you guys were young and when we were young, clowns like in the circus were actually a really good fun. thing. Right. <laughs> right. A silly thing. Yeah. Not I a watched, horrifying thing. I watched the Stephen King miniseries It at a young age though. That so, is terrible. You should so, not have done that. <laughs> clowns <sighs> were very terrifying to me. When I go back and watch the miniseries as an adult, it's hilarious. It is right. hilarious. Yeah. Right, it's ridiculous. It's um, Tim Curry as uh, as Pennywise the Evil Clown is hilarious because Tim Curry is hilarious in right. everything he does. But as a child, <laughs> it is a very terrifying... Thing. Not recommended. Yeah. Right. It's actually a little boring, too, as an adult. Mm. Yeah. As is the way of a lot of Stephen King things <laughs> as an adult. But going back to the motel, in 1995, the motel was sold to a man named Bob... Prichetti, and it's now on the market for new owners for a cool $900,000. But the only caveat is that any new owners have to agree to keep the motel running with its comfy. The guy who started was Tom Prichetta. Mm-hmm. Was he the inventor of Prichetta? I don't think so because he I, had it a, was Bob. He had a scary clown museum. <laughs> and Prichetta is delicious Bob. and wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> He could have been, Bob could be short for Roberto. <laughs> Roberto. So, okay, so they, they said they had to keep it as a clown motel and it had to stay open. Yeah. If you bought it. Yeah. Okay, those were How the How long cabins. has that been on the market? Do you know? I have no idea. Because <laughs> if those are the two things that they have to do, they may find it difficult to yes. find an owner. But there's another interesting thing about this clown motel, <laughs> right? Apart from the opportunity... To stay there and experience oh my goodness, okay. the, the <laughs> thrills of the night. Yeah. You know, by the way, I dare anybody to go there if they go there to watch it, the new it. During your stay? See, yeah, mm-hmm. just to see how it goes. Um, it is also located next to a cemetery. 
Oh, well, you can have a picnic out there. <laughs> yeah, <they're> like, <laughs> it's games. So it's, it's just the figurines, right? There aren't like staff uh, clowns. Correct. clowns. Correct. Okay. Again, it's supposed to be a fun clown motel. However, some of the figures are a little scary. Yeah, the See, one I saw was scary. Yeah. See, I always think it would be better if they just owned the fact that it was yeah. scary. Like, if you could, like, at night, you could hire staff to, like, walk by the windows and stuff. <laughs> the clowns. The people because because I feel like I feel like more thrill seekers would come to the clown motel. <laughs> I, I could because see of uh, that. a medical uh, lawsuit in the future. <laughs> but, I mean, yes. Just think about, like, haunted houses and stuff. They make yeah. a ton of money off of that kind of thing. So if you combine so. the picnic thing in the cemetery yeah. with walk around clown scary characters, right. you've got a winner. Yep. Yeah, yeah. It could <laughs> be an event. <laughs> That's right. Oh gosh. I mean, see, we should we should all pool our money. <laughs> yeah. We should go we should buy it. It's not later. scary if you're the one running the clowns. <laughs> Is it though? If you're there late at night? Well maybe no one else around the one Running, yes. yeah. <laughs> he's really running. <laughs> if you just cut to shots of all the figurines and stuff, oh it's like, or are they the ones? But who are I'm running? going to talk quickly about the the Tonopa Cemetery because it has a. Um, <laughs> it's not a clown cemetery, is it? No, <laughs> no. But again, it is. So silver was found in this particular town. It wasn't a, like a metropolis for back then, but it was still um, it still experienced the booms and disasters of most mining towns. So the cemetery was founded. Like the booms, like yeah, boom. <laughs> <laughs> so the cemetery was founded in May seventh, nineteen oh one, with the burial of John Randall Weeks, and was active until April nineteen eleven, when the number of dead outgrew the tiny plot. And they required the town required a new cemetery. So three hundred people are buried at the old location, including many of the town's pioneer residents, many who fell victim to the mysterious nineteen oh two Tonopah plague, the cause of which still remains a mystery. Hmm. Clowns. <laughs> <laughs> I know what I'm thinking. That's what I was thinking when you said the number of dead were longer than the cemetery could hold. I was like right. also the clowns. clowns. <laughs> Other eternal residents include some 14 miners who fell victim to uh, a mine fire. Among them, Big Bill Murphy, who died saving miners at age 28, and Nye County Sheriff Thomas Logan killed in a shootout in a Manhattan bordello. So, (laughs) all right then. (laughs) So, uh, many believe that the cemetery is haunted, and it says here that. Interested parties should inquire with the owner of the club motel, which is next door. <laughs> I'm not going into that motel for nothing. <laughs> so there you have it. If you're in Nevada and, hey, you're looking for a night of thrills, you know, maybe a midnight picnic in the cemetery and then go back to your uh, to your room hotel? in the your hotel. hotel. Um, to watch the movie. it. Yes. Um... So let it, if you have visited or if you want to visit and are planning a trip, let us know. Yeah, that would be interesting to hear from others. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I was looking in one of the motel rooms, and the motel rooms themselves, like the rooms themselves, mm-hmm. look like a pretty ordinary motel room. Right. Like, a couple of them had, like, pictures, like paintings of clowns on the walls, but they weren't, like, decked out. Yeah. Like the lobby. To be horrifying. Yeah. 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 Again... I think that you can make a lot of money if you just owned it. 
have like a uh, a figure a big figurine of a clown like on a chair just sitting in the corner and of every just, room just occasionally like, like in a, turn its head like in poltergeist <laughs> um uh, there when i was looking at the lobby there were several ronald mcdonald clowns and yeah. he's very sweet so that that was a very nice that kind of offset it a little bit yeah that's good Ronald will protect me when I was uh, when you started your roadside attraction unusual roadside attraction um, series one of the things I found was the world's largest collection of the world's smallest versions of the world's largest things traveling roadside attraction and museum oh wow what so they have the largest the world's largest collection no you don't have to repeat that of the world's Smallest versions of the world's largest. So, things. if you look inside this little <laughs> yeah, museum, to... they have like the world's largest ball of twine, the miniature version of it. That's hilarious. Next to the world's largest ball of videotape, and like where the world's largest is, <laughs> they have like um, the world's largest black duck, the world's largest frying pan, the world's. But they're all like the miniature, miniature the world's smallest. <laughs> but they're all collected together, so it became the world's largest collection of them. Is that so? <laughs> to me, that's hilarious. And so, it's in Kansas. do they have? Do they have the clown motel? I don't know. They should. The world's most terrifying motel. Yeah, like a miniature <laughs> version of the world's <laughs> most terrifying motel. Oh boy! Well, well, the place I'm going is, is a happy place. Is actually, oh, okay. <laughs> as I continue my series of vacationing in the United States, this uh, this time focusing on the 1970s. So in oh, the focusing on the 1970s? Yes. Well, we, in the 50s, in the 1950s, we focused on Disneyland and the creation of that type of museum, a museum, that type of attraction. Mm-hmm. So now we go through the 60s, and that was Hawaii, into the 70s, and the creation of Walt Disney World. <gasps> what? Yes, that's right. Just another excuse to talk about Disney. <laughs> So Disneyland was built in 1955, that's when it opened, and he learned a lot of lessons that he wanted to apply to the next place that he built. Obviously. Uh, One of them being that he was landlocked where he was in California, and he couldn't expand the way he wanted to. And he really was interested in not just an amusement park, but actually creating a community that had not just attractions in it, but had an effective way of running the, um, the community itself. So he actually came up with this idea of experimental community that would be a prototype for communities across the nation and across the world and that's what you're saying is an experimental prototype prototype community of tomorrow that's exactly right and he wanted a place to be able to build that but he recognized that he need he would need a funding stream in order to build that so people think of epcot today that's not the way walt imagined it at all he actually wanted this huge community that people lived in worked in it had kids, families, um, all those things. It had government and municipal activities in. He wanted all that. Unfortunately, he passed away before he was able to see that whole thing together, and Epcot became more of a different type of amusement park. It, it really became very different. Yeah, very yeah. different type of amusement park. So it still had elements of what Walt was looking for. But Walt, in the early 1960s, began to look for a place away from California that he could build this this large kind of community as well as amusement parks to go with it. He researched sites in New York, in St. Louis, and in different places in Florida. And he finally settled on 30,000 acres in a site southwest of Orlando. In swampland. That's right, in the swampland of yeah. Orlando, where he could potentially build his experimental prototype 
Community of Tomorrow. Or Epcot. Or Epcot. But because he passed away in 1966, his brother Roy oversaw the uh, building of what became Magic Kingdom and Epcot as well, as well as a number of hotels and things like that along the way. So since its opening in 1971, a conservative calculation has more than half a billion guests going through the parks at Walt Disney World. So when Walt was looking into places he could build this large area, you know, 30,000 acres, what he didn't want to happen was people to hear that he was going to be buying land somewhere. Right. And then the prices get jacked up. He was shooting for about $200 an acre is what he wanted. So where did he go for help? Well, the director of the Office of Strategic Services which was the organization in World War II that was set up um, in the United States for wartime intelligence to organize espionage activities behind enemy lines, was Bill Donovan. So after the war, Bill Donovan and a number of the people that worked in that uh, organization, the OSS, actually came together and formed a law firm in New York called Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvin. So... Disney went to that law firm to help him in finding and purchasing this land because, again, he wanted to do it secretly. So what did Donovan take from his experience as doing that kind of intelligence gathering in World War II? Well, he set up fake identities for Disney people so they could go around the country, look for these things without being identified as Disney employees, staff. He (laughs) He set up a secret communication center. So they could gather the information into one place so that Walt could gather the information and figure out what's going on where, who knows what. And he orchestrated a disinformation campaign. So in other words, he spread information that Disney wasn't going to Florida. It was some other organization that was going to Florida. That's why these people were there looking. Same with St. Louis, same with um, New York. So they created this whole campaign based on what they learned in, in World War II to help Disney pull this all together. The other thing they did was they thought ahead about the government that was going to be part of this 30,000 acres, right? Because your local government has a lot of say about what you do and what you don't do. So the law firm helped Disney set up two fake cities that became real cities, in quotes, that basically were under Disney's authority. And that's the cities of Bay Lake and the city of Lake Buena Vista, Florida. Ah. So those are actually were created as like front cities. So the local taxes, the local decisions about throughways and, and changes to how we use land were all part of Disney, even though they were part of a local government. That is insanely clever. <laughs> it really is. And very complicated. Right. Yeah. It very yes, and it but it worked because it wasn't until really late in the process yeah, that the locals true. figured Okay, no, it's really Disney buying this property. There's, you know, only held together so long, right, before it kind of started to fall apart. But it's too late at that point. But it's too late. He had most of the land he needed along the way. And, and Roy continued this even after uh, Walt passed away in 1966. So, to me, a lot of people don't make that connection between the OSS, which was the um, clandestine organization for World War II for the United States, and Disney. But I thought that was a really cool connection between the two. That is extremely cool. And Walt had most of his acreage, like a vast majority of the acreage, before people found out. Yeah, it wasn't until the last sections that he was... Right. That the price went up like a hundred times. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. So the Disney company actually had a lot of lessons learned from the original park 
since it had been open for 16 years, right? And they wanted to apply the lessons to the new park. So one of the stories out there in uh, thinking about Walt Disney World, as Walt was thinking about that and how he wanted it to operate, according to one story, Walt once saw a frontier cowboy in Disneyland walking through Tomorrowland. And he really disliked how the cowboy intruded on the futuristic setting at Tomorrowland. And he wanted to avoid that situation in the new park, which is why he came up with the idea of utility corridors underneath the park, which became utilidors. So those tunnels would be used to allow cast members to get to different locations in the park or out of the park without people seeing them in their in the wrong costumes, basically, for that the, part of the park. Right, yeah. Right? Isn't that uh, That's a great pretty idea. smart? Because Florida's <laughs> water table is so high. It's basically at the surface of the ground, which is the same way when we lived in Houston yep. it was. If it rains at all, the rain just goes up. It doesn't, it doesn't sink into the ground for a while. So what they had to do was actually build these this first layer of utilidors, the first layer, which was the administrative, how people were going to get around, the way the computer system would be laid out, was on at ground level. So the park itself is on top of that ground level. So the park is a second floor. That's basically. right. It's right. The entire for all of Magic yeah. Kingdom. Really? Yeah. So the entirety of the park is one floor up. From the ground. <laughs> so funny. And the rest is it's so funny. Is you know, underground. he's told me this. I feel like you've told us this several times. Mm-hmm. I remember it. <laughs> I, I listened to you. Thank you. That's but it is. It is really. It. It's crazy. He's just an amazing man. The thought that the fact that he had these ideas and then he made them happen. Yeah. I mean, the land he bought was swampland. It, it was. <laughs> and it's crazy that he, he had the money to do this. The other thing he did was he actually built. The Seven Seas Lagoon. So people, I think, think a lot of those water areas in the parks are natural. They're not. He recreated, he put the water where he wanted it. He didn't put the park where the water was. He put the water where he, which was just another crazy thing that that company did to make uh, Magic Kingdom and later Epcot and the other parks um, as wonderful as they are. So Epcot's Future World and, and the Disney Springs have a few utilidors, but none of them were as extensive as the first one in Magic Kingdom. The rest of the parks have learned how to create side entrances and entrances through buildings to get the same effect where people can move around without having to go through the park in the wrong type of costume. A lot less expensive than building an entire floor of tunnels and administrative structure. Right. Right. So I actually, during one of my conferences, was able to go into the utilidors. And as you can guess, it's a bunch of hallways and there's a bunch of electrical wiring at, you know, in the roofs. And there's like a lot of signs of because you can get lost really easy. A lot of signs saying where you are and where you're heading. Reminders of things. There's kiosk, computer kiosks so people can do their time cards and like normal administrative stuff that you really don't want to think about when you're at Disney World. Yeah. But there, obviously, they work there. So they have to have a place for their lunches, for their change of clothes, for, you know, to get out to the, the computer system for administrative purposes. Were you going to say something? Oh, yeah. I was going to say that I was going to, it might have taken away from the experience a little bit to see somebody, you know, punching in behind yeah. the, behind the <laughs> counter or, right. you know, to see Mickey Mouse punching out right. or going for a smoke or something. Right. Exactly. No. <laughs> Mickey Mouse doesn't smoke. Not Jeez. anymore. <laughs> That's right. But, you know, what? Old Mickey did. But. <laughs> right. Replacement Mickey. Um, 
So what they also don't want is ever to have more than one like costume character in the park at a time, right? So that's another way to manage it is that Mickey goes out this door but comes in this door so you don't ever see them. Oops, I ran into another Mickey kind of thing. <laughs> well, that's interesting. Only one in the park yes. at any time. Yes. So you, you couldn't even have character meet and greets at two different places in no. the park. That is very interesting. I yeah. did not know that. No, and it only ever happens mistakenly a couple times. And somebody will invariably catch it, like on Instagram and Twitter. Mm-hmm. And, and like they're like, but it is rare. It's rare when you see it, but it's funny when you see, oh, one's walking out, one's walking in kind of thing. So, yeah, the, the utilidors weren't that exciting when you go through. But it is interesting if you have a guide walk through and tell you about. Oh, it's also where they put their awards, like Employee of the Month or, you know, those kind of things on the... So when I was down there, I got to see people in the band. The band basically walked through. Um, were they playing? They weren't. It was really wow. sad. <laughs> they were just kind of walking I through holding their instruments. Well. Yeah, I didn't see any face characters, though, when I was down there. So opening day was October 1st, 1971. And if you remember from opening day of Disneyland, that was a horrible experience. Right? They were expecting 10000 They got 30000 So they trying to apply their lessons learned. They're trying to guess how many people are going to come to opening day. So they put the opening day in October. So it was October 1st to try to limit the crowds. Right? They gave out tickets trying to limit the crowds. And they learned from the ticket experience before where you couldn't just like mimeograph the tickets. Right? You couldn't like copy them right. and hand them out to a bunch of friends. So they were guessing it could be as bad as 200, 300,000 people wow. in a single day. They ended up with... 10,000. Holy crap. <laughs> yeah. So they actually were okay with that, oh, but wait. also a little concerned. <laughs> 10,000 total. So they were expecting maybe 200 or 300,000 yes. and got 10,000. Wow, that would be concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But they were okay with it because they put all these things in place. It's similar to me to the way Disneyland is right now with Star Wars. They put so much emphasis as to how crowded Star Wars Land was going to be. That right now, the entire park, both parks that are out there in Disneyland, are pretty empty. Nice. Because they scared so many people away. Mm -hmm. They think they did too good of a job of emphasizing that. So now they're trying to figure out how do they adjust that for the opening of Star Wars. That's interesting. I was actually listening to a podcast about that. He was saying that, um, yeah, it's so empty right now because they were predicting all these... Because Star Wars is such a big thing that they were predicting all these people would be there. And they think that they overestimated... Like, they really thought that kids would be pushing their parents to go there. Mm -hmm. But Star Wars isn't as big for this generation as it was for the last generation. And they only opened with one of the two rides. Mm -hmm. Right. Right? So the Rise of the Resistant ride, which is supposed to be like the uh, Flight of Passage ride for Pandora. It's the premier ride. Did not open. uh, Because it's... It's like the 30 to 40 minute ride. It's like this immersive experience, really. Um, And they were having technical problems with it. So they opened the rest of the land up with Millennium Falcon ride. (laughs) Millennium Falcon. You're like vaping and stuff. (laughs) I hate that ride. It's the Millennial Falcon. (laughs) The old one was better. (laughs) So they only opened with that ride. So a lot of people also thought, are thinking that maybe people are waiting to right. the second ride. Yeah, the, why go the in more, until you right. do both? And although the Millennium Falcon ride is cool, they say it'll be a shadow compared to what the new Rise of the Resistance ride will be. So we'll see about that. So there are 23 attractions and two hotels that opened on opening day. Can you guess the hotels mm-hmm. for Magic Kingdom? 
So are these these are specifically Disney owned hotels? Yes. Okay, so they're not like Dolphin, Grand no. Floridian, that no. kind of thing. But think Magic Kingdom, and think what you ride on to get into Magic Kingdom. You go to the oh, transportation the, the center. So right. I don't I don't know the name of the hotel, but it's what's the, the hotel you go through? Is it the Contemporary? Yep. So Disney's Contemporary was one, and what's the other one? Right next to the ticket and transportation center. Oh, I've heard it a hundred times as I've gone through that. The Polynesian. The Polynesian. Polynesian. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so. yeah, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm really disappointed. <laughs> hey, I'm <not> a contemporary. <laughs> so, and the park opened with 23 attractions total uh, for, for Magic Kingdom. So, of the 23, can you name some of them? The Enchanted Tiki Room. Yes. Um, that would have opened on opening day. All right, so I have to th- I have to think of what movies came out before this too. Jungle you- Cruise. Yes, Jungle Cruise was one of them. Peter Pan. Peter Pan's Flight was one of them. It's a small world. I was gonna say that too. Yes, it's a small world. Jungle River Cruise. Ooh. Jungle Cruise. Yes. The Carousel. Yes, the Carousel opened. The Dumbo ride. Yes, the Dumbo ride flying Dumbo the flying elephant ride. Dumbo the flying elephant. How many did we get? Yeah, you got a few of them. The mountains were not open. On opening day, so you think about the iconic mountains like oh, Space Mountain was, was uh, not open. Big Thunder Mountain was not open. Was Haunted Mansion? Haunted Mansion was open. Yes. Ah. yes. Hall of Presidents was open. Mm. It's funny they list things like Frontierland Shooting Arcade. It's one of the um, <laughs> attractions funny. that were open. I'm like okay, whatever. that's funny. Oh, the one with the bears. Yes, uh, bear, Country, bear, Country Bear Jamboree. Country yeah. Bear Jamboree. There was a lot of uh, recent rumors about that being taken over. And, really? and replaced, but Disney has said no. They're not going anywhere. Which for me, I know some people love Country Bear Jamboree. I am not one of those people. No, no. I get nothing out of it. But I know it was an opening day attraction, and people like opening day attractions. So, yeah, they list like the main entrance as an attraction. <laughs> yes. So now, so today we think about Walt Disney World, and of course it has multiple locations, Magic Kingdom. So that's one of the four parks in Walt Disney World is listed as number 12 of the most visited tourist attractions in the world. Wow. Wow. Kingdom. And let's make this very clear. I have had some people ask me whether or not Universal Studios is a part of Disney, the Disney whole franchise, anything related to Disney. It is not. It is not part of Disney World. It is a competitor. If you're going to go to Florida, please do your research. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so Magic Kingdom is also the most popular theme park by attendance consistently. So just the Magic Kingdom. Disney theme park or just the parks in general? Park Theme parks in general. Okay. So you look at theme park uh, by attendance of all types of theme parks mm-hmm. all over the world. The top nine are Disney parks. Really? The wow. first one that's not at Disney is Universal Studios Orlando. But Magic Kingdom... No, Universal Studios Japan is number four there. Oh, thank you. Okay. So the top... So the top... Of the top ten, eight of the ten are Disney parks. Wow. So Magic Kingdom, though, is um, top at twenty about 20.5 million people per year. Wow. Disneyland, which we talked about in the 1950s, is now at 18... Plus million per year. Tokyo Disney is next, and then Universal Studios Japan is so the first Universal uh, non Disney related park. You know, the interesting thing is with Magic Kingdom being in contrast to Disneyland, 
Magic Kingdom is just one of the four parks that that's make right. up Walt Disney World. Right. So, so you, that's just a f- one. Yes. Yeah, so them. so Magic Kingdom of the Walt Disney Four, Magic Kingdom is number one. Epcot is number six. Animal Kingdom is number seven. Hollywood Studios is number eight. So wow. if you add them all together, you get. 50, almost 55 million people per year visiting those four All that, that are all in that one Florida location. That's right. Yeah. Wow. Yes, pretty amazing. Pretty fun place. And we always like to go. We're big Disney fans. Um, I will say that we don't normally go during summer. No. Uh, and normally the people that we talk to that don't like Disney often go in the summertime. Yes. It is hot. It is humid. Right. And it is crowded. Yes. All those things together. So if you can go off season, I would highly suggest that. Um, And that is it for vacationing in the United States. As always, we end our podcast with future festivities. This would be for the week of August 5th. So August 5th is work like a dog day. (laughs) That doesn't sound like fun. August 6th, though, is wiggle your toes day. That sounds much simpler. August 7th is National Lighthouse Day. August 8th is Happiness Happens Day. August 9th is Book Lovers Day. August 10th is National S'mores Day. August 11th is Son and Daughter Day. And August 12th is Middle Child's Day. Take a Marsha, Mar- no, no, Jan, Jan Brady. Jan Brady. You said Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Jan and Peter. All right, so for Cole. Beth. Sydney. And Randy. Happy, happy Summer. summer.